Okay, so um, so I forgot to announce this at Mass, but um, in case you didn't know, um, uh, Hamas has called for a day of rage, and so the Patriarch of Jerusalem has called uh, Catholics today to have a day of prayer for peace. So why don't we start in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and pray for peace in the Middle East. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So, um, uh, I forgot... This month has uh, five Tuesdays to it, so we're going to have class next week, if that's okay with you. Uh, keep going. But Gina's not going to be here. Uh, she said she had to get away from her husband, Larry, for a while. Um, no, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure what's going on there, but I don't want to give the wrong impression. It's his fault. Um, so, like, do we need help making coffee next week, Teresa? Okay. So we'll have one more class um, before I do the podcast. But um, so this is just continuing on the fourth century. Little recap in the fourth century, um, the whole Roman Empire by by the fourth century, the whole Roman Empire is now Catholic, and <clears throat> there became this Romanization of the Catholic Church. So this is why Protestants will say, oh, Charlemagne started the Catholic Church. No, the Catholic Church existed before Charlemagne. But in this time period, when the whole Rome, Roman Empire becomes Catholic, there's this real process of Romanization. The Romans were highly, highly organized. And so the Catholic Church kind of inherits part of that, like diocese. Um, do, who did I say? Oh, thank you. I meant to say... I meant to say Constantine. Sorry, I said Charlemagne. Um, so, like, I know I mentioned, like, we are so organized. We have uh, lists for everything. We trace, all priests are traced back to one of the 12 apostles. Every square inch of the world is divided into parishes and dioceses. So, all that organization comes from the Roman Empire. Does that make sense? So, so just FYI, a lot of people don't know this. There's no such thing as a free-floating priest. <laughs> You're assigned to a bishop and to either a purpose or an order or a parish. Um, just in my former parish, there was a priest that showed up to town, and he celebrated Mass in the park for Catholics and took up a collection. I, I, there's no such thing as Long Ranger priest. Does that make sense? Um, but the problem with this high organization is we develop bureaucracy. I'm not a big fan. In fact, I secretly hate all bureaucracies, but I do find them necessary. Um, but the problem is you have this overcomplicated system sometimes. Like, this sounds kind of strange, a little psychological study for you. Bureaucracies are necessary. They really are. If you have a big organization, you need a bureaucracy to run things. The problem is, a bureaucracy's solution to everything is more bureaucracy. Um, and they did this interesting study where they gave people a problem, like a, some sort of business problem, and what's the solution? And people always think the solution adds more rules and regulations. <laughs> but sometimes the solution is less. Does that make sense? Most people think, oh, well, we need more rules. So you get a little bit of more complication. The other problem is with bishops, they start to adopt imperial practices of crests and signets and a lot of trappings of the Roman Empire. So, um, you know, like each bishop has a shield um, and a signet. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But, um, you know, like anything taken too far, you confuse church with bureaucracy. And there's this quote from um, Marcellinus. And... This is a criticism. It says, the bishops are well off. They grow rich on the gifts of noble ladies. They ride in carriages dressed in exquisite robes. 
They are, give sumptuous dinners that their banquets rival those of kings. So you start to have kind of this, not Peter the fisherman who washes people's feet, but this imperialness to it. And in the same time period, you have like <clears throat> liturgy. It, it affects liturgy. You have far more books like uh, before this. Priests said mass the best to their ability. And <clears throat> prayers always had a formula, formula to it, but it wasn't really written down because books cost, books were very expensive, as much as a car. So a lot of priests, it, <clears throat> it says, they say it to the best of their ability. But then now you have actually things being written down. And you have this transition from, in the very early church, they used wicker or pottery to celebrate mass. Um, if you're lucky, glass. <clears throat> But now you have more and more gold vessels being used at Mass. So this is the 4th century. Now you have a lot more bling and gold being used in Mass. And like, um, there's a great line from St. John Christum at this time period because people are starting to, everything's transitioning to gold uh, vessels, which I think is important. But John Christum says what's important is not having chalices of gold, but hearts of gold. If you use a good chalice or donate to the church, thank you. The blood of Christ should be kept in that. But what's more important is not the shininess of gold, but hearts that shine. Does that make any sense? But you have a slight concern in liturgy that it's a little bit more of a show. Um, and even like the pastoral theology, um, the church in the early church was really very pacifistic. But now there's more of an imperial character to the church and a certain acceptance of the violence of the empire. And in this one church, St. Constantia, the daughter of Constantine um, uh, donates a lot. And now you have Christian murals. And one large mosaic presents Christ where he looks and dresses just like the emperor. What's amazing about that, that, that's a sudden change on how Christ looks. Before that, you know what the most popular image of Christ was in the very ancient church? In, if you go to the catacombs, the most popular image of Christ is the good shepherd. But now, in this imperial status, you have Christ as the emperor. He's dressed in crowns and imperial robes. You also have this backlash. Because now in the 4th century, you have a lot of wealth in the church and organization. And then other people want to cash in on it. And the Gnostics really start to come. The Gnostics are these people who, um, Gnostic means uh, secret knowledge. Well, that is the opposite of what, what Christ taught. Christ said, I have said nothing in secret. But they would say, oh, here's a secret book of secret knowledge that Christ didn't reveal to anybody. And for 400 bucks, um, you could have this book too. Um, now, the Gnostics, um, it's all about this secret knowledge. And so um, the Gnostics, it's like that bad line from a movie, I'd tell you, but I'd have to kill you. Um, so uh, they think they have a secret knowledge. I'll get into the Gnostics in a second. But to be honest, um, you still have that problem today among some Christians who think they have a secret knowledge uh, or a secret. Um, anyhow, so Gnostics start to write their own Gospels. So um, there's this awful book. I think it was awful just because historically he just made things up. Dan Brown. Um, and the reason why it's terrible, he would say, oh, this word in Hebrew means blah, blah, blah. There's no such word in Hebrew. Or he'd say, oh, in this place, at this, like, he just makes up facts and dates. Um, and he does quote the Gnostic Gospels. So, like, um, in one Gnostic Gospel, Judas is the real saint. Uh, another Gnostic Gospel, Mary Magdalene is married to Christ. Um, so, like, I got into this, like, maybe two months ago, went out to dinner. I don't go out to people's house for dinner because I go to bed at 8 o'clock. But I was invited to this house and a non-Catholic was there and this woman says, well, you know, Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. There's an ancient document that says that. And I said, well, 
It's not ancient. It's from the 4th century, and it's a Gnostic gospel, and it was a way of making money. Does that make sense? Um, so, yeah, there is this document that says, but it's from the 4th century. Um, and why were they doing this? Money. They're just trying to create money. Um, but the Gnostic belief is not a singular set of beliefs. They all um, have different beliefs. It's just what you would sell. Um, and they really don't tell us anything historically about the early church. They tell us a lot about the person who's writing the story. Does that make sense? Um, so you have this. You also have, and I know I've spoken about this, so I'm going to test it. You also have the beginning of the desert fathers and mothers. Because remember, everybody is in the Roman Empire is now Catholic. Everybody's Christian. But the problem is they don't take the faith that serious. And so you had people who remember the persecutions that they go out in the hundreds into the deserts to create these little, they're lay people, they're lay people who just want to truly live out the gospel. That's how monasticism, monks and nuns started. Um, And they really were these islands of holiness. And so I had a whole class on this. The desert communities uh, just believed in work and prayer. Um, they would educate themselves to read because you wanted to read scripture, but they didn't believe in silly theological arguments. So at this time period, now you're starting to have, a, to me, a lot of esoteric, silly theological arguments that really just divide the church. So the early monks were like, no, we're just focusing on spirituality. We don't, we don't want to argue about things we won't really know till heaven. Does that make sense? So... You, you kind of get that as well. Um, I love the desert monks, um, but the problem is you have this close connection between the empire, politics, and religion. But the problem is we're supposed to be living in exile. Like if you read the Bible, we're always supposed to be in exile. We just don't fit in until we get to heaven. This is not paradise. Um, Abraham is promised his uh, promised the promised land, but it turns out it's going to be a while till he gets there. And if you notice <clears throat> throughout the Bible, the Jewish people are always uh, journeying to the promised land. Abraham, um, uh, Moses, and then because they become corrupt, um, they're sent to Babylon and they journey back to the. Um, holy land. And then the prophets say when the Christ comes, he'll lead us to a new holy land outside of Israel. It's heaven. But that prophecy also means we're always supposed to be a little bit of exile. If you find yourself too at home politically, maybe you've exchanged Christianity for politics. Um, We should be a little uncomfortable in the empire or we're not really journeying to heaven. Um, because I meet some people who say, oh, we need to return the church to the 1950s. Um, the 1950s isn't paradise. We're moving forward to heaven. Does that make sense? Um, the other big thing is this time period is in the West, Latin comes about. Remember, before this in the early church, the early church spoke Greek. The entire New Testament is Greek. Catholic is a Greek word, not a Latin word. The creed was in Greek. Most of the population was in the east, and in the east they spoke Greek. Um, The Latin church um, is starting to develop. So um, anyhow, um, the Eucharistic prayers that we have that are most ancient are in Greek. Now the problem is the Romans spoke Latin, but they communicated to the empire in Greek. And you'd say, well, why would the Romans have used Greek? Because remember, Alexander the Greek takes over Asia Minor, conquers everything, so that you might speak Aramaic, but for you to do business with the Romans or the Greeks or the Medes, you have to use Koine Greek. Does that make sense? Because everybody knew Greek. Then you knew your own language. So, yeah, the Romans did know Latin, but the rest of the world knew Greek. So they officially would communicate in Latin. The early church masses were in Greek. Everything is Greek, Greek, Greek. But by the 4th century, you have this split between the East and the West. So 
the East will continue to use uh, Greek. But then, <clears throat> this sounds kind of strange, more and more in the West, Latin was what people knew. Uh, with the empire being split, you don't really need to use Greek that much anymore. And more and more people used Latin. And starting in Carthage, Africa, they started to celebrate the Mass in Latin. Um, like in what we know as Italy, they would have still celebrated the Mass in Greek. But since Greek was dying out and people just began more and more to speak their native language, which in that time period would have been Latin, the Mass starts to be celebrated in Latin. Now this sounds kind of strange. It's not Rome celebrated in Latin and then it moved out. It's not what that, it's actually Latin starts to use in northern Africa and then heads up. Does that make any sense? It doesn't make sense, Lois? I don't know how to make it. Make any, so it's actually, uh, that, like there's this priest who um, says, well, the African church is alive and well in Post Falls. What does he mean by that? Because Latin was spoken by the African church. Does that, that's what he means. So, um, uh, so just a little bit of history, because um, uh, what you have is... Um, now, Greek is far more sophisticated theologically than Latin. Um, but when you translate the Latin from... Uh, the words from Greek into Latin, you lose a little bit. So remember... Christ is called the Logos. That's where you get the word logic, word, story. But Logos is a Greek theological term. How do you translate Logos into Latin? So when they translate it, they translate it into son, like father, son. Does that make sense? Um, So just kind of interesting. But And later, I know you'll hear the phrase, in the Middle Ages, you'll hear the phrase, um, Latin is the mother tongue of the church. You know, that's not true. What's the mother tongue of the church? The reason why Latin is used, why that phrase comes about, it's just a way of insulting the Eastern Catholics. (laughs) Um, Because they still used Greek. Um, So, anyhow, um, after Constantine's death and 317, the Roman is, is completely divided, um, but not all places in the Catholic Church use Latin. So I'll give you an example. Um, so yes, starting from Africa up, they did, but what about Christians in Palestine? Guess what they celebrated Mass in? Greek or Aramaic? Um, St. Thomas, he makes his waves to uh, India, and this sounds kind of strange, like this uh, church in India is really quite ancient. The Portuguese sailors will come upon it later. They didn't celebrate mass in um, Latin in India. That Latin's not going to come about for 300 years. What they celebrated was Greek and then switched to their native language. In Ireland, St. Patrick didn't celebrate mass in Latin. What did he celebrate it in? Celtic. Um, he spoke their language. And so uh, when anybody says, oh, Latin is the mother tongue of the Catholic Church, that was really a way of insulting um, the Greeks. Um, now, so during the fourth century, Latin starts to flourish. And you have a lot of great Latin scholars. Um, now, one uh, like is Marcus uh, Felix. Nobody ever knows who he is. That's, he lived in... Um, 250 A.D., uh, he was in Rome, and he's one of the early Latin Roman apologists. And he's this great writer, um, and this sounds kind of strange. He tells this fictionalized story, and he tells this fictionalized story of three friends who go to the beach, and they walk, and on the beach, um, two of them are Christian, and one of them is pagan. But by the end of the debate, they're debating on the beach, um, three come back. And it's this kind of interesting, deep study on um, where one of them plays a judge and the other pagan says what's wrong with Christianity and the other one argues what's right with Christianity. And they mostly use Greek philosophy. Um, but um, 
it's written in Latin for everybody. Um, so I just like that. Another very famous uh, theologian is Tertullian. Tertullian. He's not a saint. In fact, you should pray for him today too. Um, he lived in 220, but he was this brilliant lawyer, son of a centurion. He lived in Carthage. Um, and, but his writings, he's not a saint, but he, his writings, he is a gifted intellect. Um, and I like this line. He says, I believe because it is absurd. In a world that works by greed and power, Christianity works by self-sacrificing love. And he gives an example, he just writes how, oh no, that's how bizarre our faith is. The world that works by power and control always loses. You know, they get start a war and then everything's devastated. The ones who practice self-sacrificing love, and he goes off on that, um, that's the ones who win. He's the one who came up with the line, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the faith. Now, Tertullian he was, any time he walked into the room, he was the smartest person in the room. But like a lot of smart people, he tends to be very witty, but sarcastic. Um, and he became very impatient with the incompetence of the hierarchy. Um, and I feel for him. <laughs> but he ends up actually being a, a, a kind of a heretic. But he just had no patience for people's flaws and the stupidity of leadership. Nice to know our leadership has not been that great since the time of Peter. But it's no reason to leave the church. Or the really big one is Jerome. Jerome, brilliant. Um, he's one of the most important Latin writers because he does something shocking. He changes, he, he translates the Bible from Greek into Latin. Now, Believe it or not, that was controversial at the time because people would say, well, Jesus never spoke Latin. The apostles didn't speak Latin. They spoke Greek. The mass is in Greek. Why are you writing the Bible in Latin? Because that's what people spoke. Does that make sense? So he does something kind of because the Vulgate, the common language of the people, was Latin. Um, he writes these introductions to Scripture. So like his theology is really, really important now. Honestly, he was kind of a cranky guy. Um, and so the joke from the early church was, well, if St. Jerome can become a saint, anybody can become a saint. Because <laughs> he kind of was a very cranky person. And then there's uh, uh, Ambrose of Malone, Milan. Sorry, um, Brilliant. Uh, he, he's what he's most noted for is um, baptizing St. Augustine, who I'll get to next. But what I like about Ambrose is that he wasn't even Christian. And there's an art, but, and I know I mentioned that, but just to repeat, if we're going to elect a bishop, what would happen in the early church is for three days you would pray, and on the third day you would come and elect. So the Catholic Church, early form of democracy. But the problem is the church in Milan were deadlocked against two candidates, and they couldn't agree. And uh, they thought it was going to be a right. He's not even baptized. Ambrose is this brilliant administrator, shows up and talks the people into calming down. They're so amazed by him. They say, well, we're electing you, Bishop. And he says, I'm not even baptized. So they baptize him. He celebrates all the sacraments in one day, and by the end of the day, he's Bishop. <laughs> but he takes it very seriously. And um, this great theologian. And Augustine is brilliant. He's the real giant of this time period. Um, the two great theologians of Christianity, really, that changed it, are St. Paul, and the next one is St. Augustine. He changes everything. He's brilliant. He's this wild guy kid. Meets Ambrose, and he's struck about Ambrose's intelligence. And so um, he becomes... Um, baptized, he lived this wild life, comes baptized, then becomes this um, hermit. And he's uh, in hippo, but he's a hermit and just wants to pray and work on spirituality. And he comes into um, hippo for some reason, and the bishop there sees him and recognizes him. Like, he was a brilliant man in Rome. Recognizes him, he says, you should elect that man as your next bishop. So once again, he 
gives up being a hermit, is uh, ordained a priest and a bishop. And his writings really influences most of theology at this time period, even to this day. Um, Even Protestants uh, always quote St. Augustine, which kind of cracks me up because I had this one kid who had him in youth group, then he got married, went to a Protestant church, and um, then reverts back to the Catholic church. He says, you know what really got me back to the Catholic church is... Or he went to an evangelical church, but he would the minister would often quote Augustine, and he remembers thinking, "You're always quoting Augustine. Shouldn't you be Catholic?" <laughs> and it just warned him. He actually does come back, but um, uh, now this sounds kind of strange. Think about this time period, with the Roman Empire suddenly becoming Christian. Is it a revolution or a capitulation? Just as one can argue that the church made significant compromises with the empire, so did the faith change the empire. So the faith actually did change the Roman Empire. Uh, Only the most malicious or ignorant would say that Christianity didn't improve the empire. Um, Suddenly, with the empire being Catholic, the emperor was no longer divine. And then they start to create more just laws, no crucifixion, no branding people's faces. The wealthy um, start to use their money to support the poor. Um, the persecutions um, actually made a lot of converts, that's true, but um, then the Roman Empire systematized a way to help the poor. Pagan Rome never did that. Christian Rome did. Um, bishops, although they you know, were well-respected, they also had this idea of justice that pr- was promoted in the Roman Empire. Like Ambrose, at one point, the emperor shows up to church, but he had just slaughtered some people who revolted against him, and Ambo- Ambrose refused him communion, which is really brave. A man just, the emperor just, slaughtered a bunch of people. Are you really going to challenge him at the door of the church? And Ambrose did. Made him do penance. Um, So the Romanization of the church did make us more organized, but it also um, uh, changed the Roman Empire. But we became more administrative, more bureaucratic, more doctrinal. Um, So anyhow, um, uh, you have this kind of study. Does that make any sense? No. I'm going to switch it up. Um, You guys know that churches in the United States are dying. Luckily, not the Catholic Church, but we're not thriving either. We're just maintaining. Um, And it's not like this is going to be surprising, but atheism is dying as well. Um, So 31% of the world does identify as Christian. Now, Islam is shooting up a little bit, but... uh, Hinduism and Buddhism is also declining. Atheism is declining by 13%. Um, Now, the odd part, atheists always say, well, you know, Christians are ignorant, you only care for yourself. But really, um, what's the most diverse church ever in human history? The Catholic Church. Not atheism. Um, Oddly enough, the typical atheist tends to be white and wealthy. Um, but Christianity is outpacing atheism in China as well. We're the most diverse. We have every language and um, uh, culture that there is. Um, and most young atheists like to say when Christians evangelize, they're shoving white American values down people's throats. Actually, it's the opposite. Um, It's atheists who tend to be white and wealthy. uh, And they're shoving their beliefs down other people's throat. And so, like in all futuristic movies today, you'll see that religion has died out and human progress is only made through intellectual discoveries. But when will they realize that the world has not gotten better because of just intellectual discoveries? Rome does have a golden age, but its intellect plus a spirituality. Ireland has a golden age uh, after Patrick for this golden age of spirituality. No war, 
you know, why did the Irish save civilization? They promoted spirituality, peace, and education. Um, so um, who built universities? That's a Catholic thing. Um, hospitals, all the great scientists in history are actually Christian, Catholic. The scientific method was developed by the Catholic Church. Um, Christianity is not anti-intellectual, but it matches intellect with spirituality. Um, that's my only point. Um, so, um, uh, like, even scientifically, this sounds kind of strange. If you want to have a longer life, you know, one of the things you should do, practice religion. Religious people live longer. Spousal abuse is two times less. Marriages last longer if you practice a religion. The volunteer rate in the United States is double if you're religious. Um, for charities, any charity, it's religious people that gives 3.5 times more. Most charity, volunteer, is done with, by those who are religious. And you have less um, conviction, less criminal behavior in 46 different categories if somebody's religious. So think about this. Religion, is my point, changed the world. Catholicism did. Uh, starting with just marriage alone. Why were, I know I mentioned this, but in the Roman Empire, suddenly marriages were lifelong lasting. That is the Christian revolution. Does that make sense? So in one sense, Christianity was a revolution to politics, but also during the fourth century with everything becoming political, um, you also had some capitulation. Does that make any sense? So it's good and bad. Um, now, I was going to move on to the collapse, unless there's any questions. Yes? Yes. Yes, I can. But I can't do that till I get to the 900s. So we have another 400 years to go. Because <laughs> he makes a good point. Think about this. At this time period, what he said, if you said, well, the East and the West, West are in schism, not at this time period. It's still one Catholic church. So the Greek Orthodox and the Catholics are still one church. Does that make sense? It's not going to happen really until about the year 1,000 that, it's, that there's a problem. Yes, women. The reason why so many women convert to Christianity was that women were treated much better, weren't exposed. So, yeah, this sounds kind of strange. The first women movement was started by Christ. That sounds, you know, Jews, actually, Jews treated women very well, but not even to the standard of today's. The Celts treated women well, but that's only two cultures. Um, Greeks and Romans treated women terribly. Um, the first women's revolution was Christ. Okay, so um, now we have the empire. Now, now I want to go through the empire's fall, but this is going to be my theory. Is um, My theory is this. Um, let's see if this makes any sense. Um, you can never tell which direction the solution to the world is coming because it always comes in a direction you least expect. So when you say, I'm looking for the solution, my, in my head, my joke is, it's always going to come from behind you. <laughs> the solution, so this sounds kind of strange. Um, Christ starts a church, and then almost immediately there's persecutions. And you could say, oh my God, that's terrible, persecutions. But the church grew the fastest under persecution. And you took your faith with deadly seriousness because just to gather for mass is a capital crime. Just to be baptized is a capital crime. So they took it really serious. <clears throat> then you'd think, oh my God, it's great that the Roman Empire is now Catholic. But the problem is, then you have cultural Catholics, not serious Catholics. Does that make sense? So you'd think that would be good, but it's actually not. And then now I'm going to get to the Roman Empire falls. 
You think, oh my God, it's terrible that the Roman Empire fell. But once again, the church, um, yes, everything fell apart, but then we evangelize um, the Germans. So now the East, it never fell, right? It, you know, in 1450-something, it's going to fall. So just about when Columbus sails the ocean blue, uh, they fall. But so the eastern side always remained. But the odd part is the western side, it collapses. The Roman Empire collapsed. And my point is going to be it's the best thing that happened at that time period. Because, you know, Christ makes this really big deal that we're supposed to be going to the ends of the earth and evangelizing. Things got very comfortable in the Roman Empire, and we stopped evangelizing. Does that make sense? And so the fall of the Roman Empire was actually a really great thing because um, it caused us to evangelize. Now, you have the collapse of the empire, and that means there's a power vacuum. So just imagine, um, in the 5th century, granted, there's universal acceptance in the Roman Empire, but the Germanic tribes that entered the West first to fight for the Romans, um, and then later they attacked Rome. Um, by 410, the Goths attacked the Vandals. In 455, in 476, there is no more emperor in the West. Now, um, the problem with the Vandals, uh, the refugees begin to conquer. But the Germanic tribes that entered the empire were either pagans, the Franks and the Angles and the Saxon, or Aryan, the Visigoths, Burgundians, Vandals. They were Aryan, Aryans, but they all get clapped. They all get converted. So in this odd way, it's a really good thing. Does that make sense? And also, we became more of an urban religion, more of a hoity-toity religion. Um, now, Think of all urban centers have collapsed. The legal system has collapsed. Um, there's this huge depopulation from the cities. Even Rome itself decreases to 20,000. So imagine if our worst enemy, the Canadians, came in and decimated everything. No more legal system, no more government, no more schools. Who's going to fill the vacuum? Who would fill the vacuum if all that was done away with? The one thing that unites everybody is the church. So the church had Roman administration. Um, so the church starts to fill in in the power vacuum. Um, you know, the Roman legal system is gone, but priests are still very educated. So they start to arbitrate decisions. Um, bishops were the natural successors to Roman governors, because they're often from the uh, aristocracy anyhow. Um, and so more frequently, the answer to education and control and administration was the clergy in the West carrying out these functions that had been handled by Roman bureaucracy. But now you see the problem. Now, you, now religion is associated with keeping society running, where in the early church, the role of the church was to usher in the kingdom of God, to usher in a completely new way of being, not stabilize our current way of life. Does that make sense? Now, it needed to because in the Dark Ages, everything had fallen apart. But it was a church that stabilized. But then you get this other problem. Um, the church now has a lot of influence. And kings were very interested in who's named bishops or abbots because they have control of the land and a lot of influence. So you have more and more kings trying to not have bishops elected but appointed by kings. And Dante, the famous writer, argued that this was the beginning of the corruption in the divine comity. Um, because the church became wealthy. Um, actually, like the pope himself is going to control huge swaths of land. And so kings use their influence to make appointments to these offices. Um, they want them chosen from noble families and have an agenda that would work for the uh, king. But think about this. If you're electing a bishop, 
whose perspective do you think um, a good bishop would have? That of the people or the perspective of the major politician, the king? Completely different agenda. Um, it's not piety or administrative uh, skills that matter. It's sympathetic political views to the king. So you have now. Eventually, um, bishops will not be elected. Actually, the last elect, elected bishop was around just before World War II in Germany. Um, so now today, you kind of think, well, no, the pope assigns bishops. That's actually more of a modern thing. But now you have the modern thing of something similar to what's the problem here. The problem here is that if you want to become, if you want to become, where's your wife, by the way? Oh, okay, I'll let it go. What? Nancy, are you here? Oh, yeah, she is. Oh, yeah. Okay. Apparently, you're going to have marriage problems. Um, <laughs> uh, no, sorry. Uh, Nancy, you can sit by your husband. I'll make sure he behaves. Um, Linda, why are you saying Nancy? I always do it. Sorry. Linda, do you want to sit next to your husband? You don't have to. Oh, no, she doesn't. Um, anyhow, that was wrong. That was called embarrassing somebody. But my feeling is if you're going to belong to St. Pius, you better not be a snowflake because eventually I'll pick on everybody in this room. Um, but the same way you have some people, let's say you want to become a bishop, you know you have to schmooze up to the king if the king has a lot of influence and selection. Does that make sense? You have the same problem today, except now it's... Um, priests who want to become bishop, you have careerism. And that sounds really silly, but uh, um, like one of my close friends, he actually, he's not a bishop, but he really in the seminary won really strong to become a bishop. Um, so, and he would have been great, but you have to play this kind of political game. And one of them is that you have to get to Rome. You have to get to Rome and get some, get your name in the bureaucratic system. You don't go to Rome for education. You go to Rome so that you be, can get your name in the, with the bureaucracy. Does that make sense? Or Todd Brown, he just died. Great bishop. Um, he really was. I know, you might know Todd Brown. Terrible social skills. But he was a great bishop. There's a reason why we didn't have any pedophilia in Idaho. Because he didn't allow that. Like, I loved him as a bishop because he would call you up and say, hey, I noticed your collection's dropped. <laughs> uh, what's going on there? And his position was, and I like this, he said, the only vote people have is a pocketbook. So if the collections go down, that means something else is wrong. Well, as in McCall, it's a seasonal place. Or he'd call and say, listen, I need you to do these three things within a year or you and I will be having a conversation. I, I hate to say that I respect that rather than, you know, he doesn't know my middle name. You know what I mean? Like, he was watching. He wanted to know. Does that make any sense? And he had an overall plan for the diocese. So to me, he was a great bishop, and he didn't allow any shenanigans. First sign of a problem, there's going to be a problem. So, but he wasn't harsh. I know I make him sound harsh. He wasn't harsh. His deal with it was this, and he would tell his priests, never lie to me. I can handle whatever problems happens in your life. People mess up. People make mistakes. No problem. I will have your back. But the first lie you tell me, you're out. Believe it or not, I can work with that. Does that make sense? Anyhow, Bishop Brown, who was a great bishop, um, says to me once, he says, you know, and I <laughs> this how stupid I am. He said, um, did you know everyone in my class in Rome, became a bishop except for one guy who had some problems. So he tells me that, and I said, wow, I guess that's really competent people in your class. And he says, no, <laughs> that's not my point. He said, my point is, Rome is a place where you make political connections. And I was like, what? And he says, yes, that's why um, I send somebody to Rome, because I want political connections. So I had to tell him, I am terrible at politics. So, but I, I am smart. So I got 
three masters, but he wanted to send me to one place was Rome, and I said, I, I'm not good at making political connections. That's that guy. So I went a different route. But um, I, I admire his honesty. Does that make sense? Or um, this other priest I work with, um, he was a great parish priest. Great. Loved him. And I was a, se- I was a deacon. Um, and saw Todd Brown at dinner. He says, oh, where are, you, where are you spending your diaconate year? Who are you helping out with? And I said, oh, Father so-and-so in this town. He says, you're kidding. He said, he was brilliant when he was in Rome. And he's, I said, what is he doing now? And I said, he's just a small parish priest. And he says, wow, the mighty have fallen. <laughs> so I told the priest what Todd Brown said. And he laughed. And he says, oh, yeah, that's true. I did know Todd Brown in Rome. Um, I said, well, what did he mean, the mighty have fallen? He says, oh, when it came to Rome and schmoozing and politics, nobody was better than me. He says, he said, if you go to school in Rome, you don't go to class. The professors will just send you their notes and you read them. But you don't go to class. He said, I went to coffee shops and museums and you tried to make bureaucracies. He said, I was working the system as much as I can. Um, and then came time for him to become ordained a priest. And he said, um, I had this terrible night because I kind of thought, oh, the day I get ordained a priest, I'm going to have to play this schmoozing game the rest of my life. And he said, I just, I can't do it. So he said, I'm going to get ordained a priest, and that's all I'm going to ever be as a priest. Um, he says, I don't want to have to play that game my entire life. Now, the point being is that um, for the last couple decades, there's been excessive careerism where you've got to schmooze. So going back to the problem now, with the fall, yeah, uh, what kept society together? The Catholic Church. But then you can see if the Catholic Church steps into this um, vacuum of running things, you can understand why kings want to get more involved in who's selecting a, a, a bishop. And who's ever selected a bishop um, by a, the king usually is not that great of a Bishop. Does that make sense? Um, but you have some great leaders in this time period. Leo the Great. Um, first to use the argency of Peter's primacy. Uh, first to use the word hierarchy. Um, he's the one who negotiated with Attila to hunt to stop the first plunder. Didn't stop the second. Um, now, that's what's going on in the West. Society has fallen apart. But remember, the East still is running. At this time period, they're in their golden age. They build Hagia Sophia. But in the West, Hagia Sophia, if you ever go to Turkey, um, this beautiful church from this time period. But in the West, churches are built really these wooden walls, compounds. Um, And the East is so powerful because they never fell. Whoever fell, whoever is named um, Pope in the 6th and 7th century has to be approved by the emperor in the East. Um, that's how powerful the East was. So Rome authority around Rome in the 5th uh, century um, was very, very weak. Um, the popes were kind of left alone, but in another sense, they are hemmed in by all these political powers. And it, the pope always had to be deferential to Constantinople because the emperor would impose his will. So the problem is Rome loses a lot of its respect um, in this time period. Um, now, I use the term Dark Ages, but technically the Dark Ages um, is misnamed because like, great advances were made in the Dark Ages. Look at the cathedrals. Look at those Romanesque cathedrals. Holy cow, they're amazing. Um, uh, you have wind and water power, uh, hydro uh, power. That was invented by monks. You had the eradication of slavery. Uh, granted, they were turned into serfs, but it's a, better than being a slave. That's due to the Catholic Church. You have more and more banking and money. That was, once again, used by the, by the Catholic Church, standardized grammar. Um, 
it's a very violent period. Um, that's somewhat true, but that's more because of the Muslim invasions. And this sounds kind of strange. Like just when it comes to history, two things. One, the first woman Episcopal Pelion bishop, she claimed that Islam uh, promotes violence. Oh, anyhow, when somebody claimed that Islam promotes violence, she said, remember, Charlemagne converted whole tribes by the sword, that the Catholic Church threatened people to be converted or die. That's not true. There's no historical evidence of that. Most missionaries ended up being martyrs. Now, there were forced conversions, but it wasn't by the church. It was by political leaders. Does that make any sense? Um, so you have kind of this miss, missing. Now, I also want to mention a second thing just to argue. Um, and I want to, so at this time period, from the apostles to the Dark Ages, the 6th century, I'm going to say, how did people, um, well, there's only still one church, the Catholic Church, how you pray is how we do it today. The Mass is pretty much the same. But I want to mention uh, this problem because it came up last week. I can use history to explain it. Um, how did people go to communion? And I'll tell you what the problem is. So <clears throat> last week I had some 20-year-olds tell me that I'm not an Orthodox priest because I allow people to receive communion in the hand. I find that a little bit of an insult, 31 years of priesthood and poverty and celibacy, three masters, and, and I have a 20-year-old telling me I'm not orthodox. Um, I mean, I just, what? Um, but that was last week. Um, well, actually, it was two weeks ago. Sorry, two weeks ago. And then also, same time period, at the cathedral, there's a newly ordained priest, Father Tim, who during the communion line is giving out communion and one guy confronts him in an argument at mass um, saying that he's not an orthodox priest because he's allowing communion in the hand. Okay, that's t same time period. Then this guy in Sun Valley is visiting and he writes this article that he was denied communion by the priest there. Um, and then Bishop Peter uh, supported it. The problem is, when I read it, I was like, oh, bull, because I know the priest in Sun Valley. Known him since the U of I. Like, I'm, this is going to shock you. You guys don't know this about me. I tend to be a little confrontational. Um, no, no, it's true. I know you always say, my God, you're like St. Francis. I tend to be very confrontational. He is the opposite of that. He's a schmoozer. Does that make sense? He doesn't, nice guy, he's a friend, but he doesn't want anybody to dislike him. So when it said he denied somebody communion, I was like, oh, no, <laughs> that, is, that is not him. Does that make any sense? So then anyhow, I, you don't have to have one of these. These is just if you want them. Um, so then um, uh, I knew that was false. So I checked it out. No, he wasn't denied communion. He wrote this whole article how he was denied communion. Um, I don't know why I'm passing these out. Here, you pass those out. Um, <laughs> how he was, he was never denied communion. But I'm just saying, they must have been all on the same website that says, we're going to create problems this week. Does that make sense? So, listen, truth be known, so I kind of thought in this class, oh, I better cover this in the history class. You can go to communion with, on the hand or on the tongue. Liturgically, not a pope, only the uh, pope can, can uh, order somebody, not even a bishop. It's your right to receive either way. So the, the priest who said, or the 20-year-old said, you shouldn't, I shouldn't allow people to have communion. I don't have that power. Does that make sense? Um, no, what's that? I, I don't have that power to deny, say you have to have it one way or another. That is your choice. Now, in the early church, and I just just because I thought, oh my God, somebody's going to challenge me on it. So I quickly, there's probably grammatical mistakes in there. I quickly wrote out the evidence that if you look just the evidence we have, the early church, um, how they distributed communion was in the hand. 
You have all these documents everywhere in the Roman Empire. They distribute it in the hand. Um, a, lot of do- a lot of proof if you want that. The first recorded use of communion on the hand is in the 600s by this bishop. Then 900s, it becomes official. Then, actually, by the time of uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas, that's how everybody's doing it. Nobody received communion on the hand. Um, so the point being is that um, then Vatican II, they said, no, you can have it either way. The most ancient way of receiving communion is in the hand. Um, that's my point. And my point is you can do it either way, but just historically you can't say, oh, anybody who has communion on, in the hand is not being true to the ancient church. That's a lie. Does that make sense? I know I, they're trying to create division over an issue that doesn't have to be an issue. So that's why I wrote that out. You don't have to, you can throw that away. I just was like, I know something, just want to prove my point. Yes? Yes, there is an issue. Um, that the, the GRM, the General Instructions of the Roman Missal, says the proper position for receiving communion is standing. And that is also ancient. But no priest is allowed to deny somebody communion who's kneeling. So, I, once again, you can't deny communion for that. You could say it's, that's what the germ says, but a priest doesn't have the right to deny communion. So the problem is, I don't know why there's this anger today that they want to create division. Even like this deacon at the cathedral, um, this girl was wearing a mask during communion, um, actually it was last year, but she was wearing a mask because her grandmother was deathly sick and she didn't want to pass something over. And so she was wearing a mask just to protect her grandmother who they were going to visit. And the priest, not the priest, the deacon denied her communion because she was wearing a mask. Now, you're not allowed to do that. So if somebody kneels, a priest or deacon is not allowed to deny communion. Does that make sense? But don't tell me I'm unorthodox because I allow people to receive communion in the hand. That's actually orthodox. You, You can't deny somebody communion. Right, moral issues, not silly issues. Are we talking about Nancy again? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know what, though? I, I wouldn't use the mask to humiliate somebody. I would head that problem off. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever do publicly humiliate somebody. I mean, I, but that's just me. All right, um, moving on. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Um, why was I speaking of Islam again? Um. I forget why I was mentioning that. Oh, well, we'll get to Islam too. Um, So you have this rapid conversion, um, but with the fall of Rome, evangelization becomes far more important. Um, And so the odd part is um, all these invading armies get converted, but then um, the Pope, Pope Gregory, really starts evangelization. he has missionaries being sent out all over the place. Now, oddly enough, one of the places that was first evangelized was uh, Ireland. Ireland knew about Christianity during the Roman time period, but that was the religion of the oppressor. Um, 
I don't think I'm going to go over the story of St. Patrick because it would take too long. But Patrick goes to Ireland with others, evangelizes Ireland. Ireland becomes this golden age of spirituality. Now, Patrick, when he evangelizes Ireland, he lets them keep all their Irish, Celtic um, ways. And this sounds kind of strange. But the Pope, Pope Gregory, he wants to evangelize the world. He sends them out and he says, oh, he says, when you evangelize, Christ is already there with this, these people. You're not bringing them Christ. What you're bringing them is an awareness of Christ. Christ is already speaking to them. So um, I'm just going to stop with Ireland. But So Patrick has this idea. He's not going to take their culture away and make them little Romans. He's just going to make them Catholic. So this time period, you're going to have... Um, I know we have only five minutes. So but... Um, like he lets them keep their uh, Celtic culture, but just makes it Catholic. Now, the Celtic culture is much different. The Celtic church did not work by a Roman diocesan system like we have. The Celtic church worked by monks and monasteries. They did have parishes and cathedrals, but it was more of a monastic community. And, um, but it wasn't diocesan. They did have bishops. But the real powerhouses were monasteries and nuns. And it was a big fight. So at one point, uh, I think this is hilarious. Uh, they had operated hundreds of years that way. And then one, um, uh, Rome sends somebody to say, oh, you've got to give up the Celtic model and do the Roman diocesan system. And they weren't quite sure because, you know, for a couple hundred years, they worked m monastically. You just have to understand this because it's going to be a fight in about 600 years. Um, but they weren't quite sure. So um, they, the leaders come in to talk with this bishop, and the bishop decides, I'm going to show them. And he starts to yell and scream at them. The problem is, they weren't sure what to do. So the night before, they went to this hermit who was known to be holy. And the hermit says, I don't know what the best solution is, but... If that bishop has your best interests at heart, he'll show you respect. But if, he ju if it's just about power, he'll come in yelling and screaming. So this guy decides yelling and screaming. He yells and screams that they're not orthodox enough, and they just sit. And they said, oh, this is how we're going to decide it. If you showed us respect, it means you have our best interests at heart. So it was like another couple hundred years before Ireland switched over to the Roman system. Because, uh, like, I, it's a good cautionary tale. Or the Germans, he sends, uh, the Pope sees these Anglos um, uh, at, in the marketplace, and he's never seen blondes. He says, oh, they're Anglos. Uh, and he says, no, they're angels. Uh, and he sends um, missionaries to England to evangelize England. Now, England was already evangelized with the Roman Empire in a way, parts of it, but then fell and then gets re-evangelized. Germans, same thing. He sends um, missionaries to Germany and then past the Rhine. So um, my only point being is that, ah, the fall was good because it created all this evangelization. And the evangelization happened up from Rome, but of Europe, and also from Ireland. But the thing I want to walk, uh, like we adopt, like the Christmas tree. Where does this Christmas tree come from? German. Um, it w so they just turned it into a Christian symbol saying, oh, the tree is the cross and the fruit on the tree is Christ and the candle is Christ, the light of the world. The German culture was different than the Roman culture. It was a warrior culture. So really interesting if you want to study that. And they just made, um, and you can use the Bible, like you, St. Paul, that grit, determination, suffering, fighting for what's right, that is our way. So they use that kind of warrior culture to evangelize. That's a little bit different than how Patrick did it. Does that make sense? So let's say we're going to evangelize right here in Coeur d'Alene. I don't think you have to take away their Americanism. Does that make sense? Or you use the values they have and speak to them that way. You don't say, well, you know, in Rome, you have to wear, you know, it has to be like a little Roman church here. Does that make sense? So 
this is the time period of, yes, um, great evangelization. Can I just go a little bit more? And I'm just going to give you the conclusion. I have the proof, but I'll bore you too much. Um, what got us out of the Dark Ages? Everything fell. What held us together in the Dark Ages? The Catholic Church. What rebuilt us from the Dark Ages? If you really study it, it's monasticism. Monasteries became centers of community and learning and education. Uh, where did hydropower come from? Monks. The wind. Monks. Uh, monetary system. The monks. Does that make sense? It's community and values and education that rebuilt Europe. That's what monasteries did. Okay, so that's kind of the Dark Ages. Questions, objections? Yes. Oh, the church in Post Falls, St. George. <laughs> Joan of Arc. Oh, Immaculate Conception. Oh, okay. So, Immaculate Conception. So, that'll get to when we get to Vatican II, but basically they broke off of Vatican II. So, before, think about this. Before Vatican II, people received on the tongue because they switched that. So, they want in Latin, uh -huh, everything before Vatican II, and they want the French uh, monarchy restored to France. I don't think that's going to happen either because they were, when they broke away, it was actually a French contingency that broke away, so they want the French monarchy returned, and Vatican II to be done away with. I think they better not hold their breath. All right, uh, so we're going to meet next week, okay? All right, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, this is Father Len McMillan. I'd like to take a moment to thank you for listening to our podcast. If they've been a blessing to you, I'd also like to invite you to prayerfully discern supporting the podcast financially. Your generosity would help support the ongoing production and distribution of the podcast. If you'd like to make a donation, you can simply click the link in the podcast description. Be sure to tell us your donation is for the podcast in the comment section of the submission form. Again, thank you for your support as we seek to share the good news of the gospel. May God bless you for your generosity.